podcast made by, for, and about the Eastface. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexander. Hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to Fans on the Run. Exploring the Beatles' societal impact one person at a time. See, I, I always start these shows with something really self-deprecating, but I felt today I needed something, you know, grand to balance out my over-dependence of the F word. But that's that's just how I roll at this point. Uh, it, it's been about a month since I've come back. I'm out of retirement. I've crawled out of my shell and I'm once again thrusting episodes upon the world. That was not a great choice of word, but I digress. Again, that's a phrase you haven't heard in a while, because that's like the tagline of the show. I digress. But we have a great guest for you today. Our guest today is a professor of history at Joliet Junior College. He's the author of a fab book called Joy and Fear, The Beatles, Chicago, and the 1960s. Would you please give a warm welcome Drum roll, please. There's no drum roll, but you can infer the drum roll. John Lyons, welcome to Fans on the Run. Hello, Ethan. It's a pleasure to be here. And yes, I did hear the drum roll in my mind. See, that's that's the beauty of the show. You can hear things that aren't there. But if you hear too many things that aren't there, you should probably contact a medical professional. Exactly. There's a lot of things I hear in my mind that I probably shouldn't be telling you about. But anyway, hello, Ethan. That, that's it's for a different great. podcast altogether. Exactly, yeah. Forget about that. But uh, it's nice to be here and a pleasure to see you. And I'm in Chicago and you're in uh, Canada, I believe. I am in Canada. Similar yes. weather. Yeah. Except you're, yeah. you're stuck with the rain today and we get the yeah. rain. Today we we're yesterday. Raining. Yeah. But up until recently, we've been under two feet of snow. So it's kind of nice just to see the ground that's something i can empathize with yeah exactly i knew you would us chicago canadians yes us snow people yeah exactly so how how have you been doing in this crazy crazy time well ethan i've got to be honest not too bad i know i should tell you it's been horrible but i always think there's two things one thing is i'm alive a lot of people aren't that's a good uh, start Exactly. And uh, maybe it's a low bar, but there you are. And also, um, I'm healthy or reasonably for my age. And the other thing is I've got a job. So for them reasons, I can't complain. There you go. But I'll tell you what the other thing did, uh, the uh, COVID did for me. It allowed me time to finish my book. Because lucky enough, I did all the research before the COVID hit. Lucky enough, I'd had everything done. I'd visited all the archives, libraries, did the uh, interviews. And uh, so all I had to do was finish up the uh, the writing. And of course, it was ideal that uh, last March, March the 6th, I remember it well, I said uh, to my students, uh, uh, goodbye, have a great spring break. And I'll see you in a week. And I haven't seen them since except online. So anyway, I mean, in other words, I had a fair bit of time uh, to actually finish up uh, the book. So I was kind of glad for that as well. So I can't complain too much. That has been one of the the nice things about the COVID situation. You know, book delays aside, there's been a slew of great books coming out because all these good authors have have time to sit down and write. Yeah, exactly. Because I live quite a long way from my college. So it's uh, instead of spending all that time commuting, uh, I could spend it doing something productive. 
And that was one of the things uh, productively that I did. So, yeah, I've been very good. And also last summer, we never went anywhere. So that was also time spent uh, writing as well. So. You, you, you're here to talk about the book, but there's there's some questions I want to ask you first, kind of going back to the beginning, so to speak. How did you first discover the Beatles? Ethan, you can probably notice, and maybe some of your listeners are educated people, I'm not from Chicago. Wait, I don't wait. Know. Yep. I know. You thought I was from the south side, but I'm not. And I'm actually from London, England. And I was born in 1960. So, you know, a lot of people talk about them being either first generation or second generation mm-hmm. Beatles fans. I'm kind of 1.5. That That's something I've, I've heard quite a bit, too. It's, yeah, you, you were there in the 60s, but yes. you weren't old enough to be one of the, you know, kids screaming at... I, I, I was going to say... The only I did was with my parents, you know, it wasn't at the Beatles. I was going to say, like, screaming at the uh, JFK airport, but then I'm like, well, well, you're from London, so it would be screaming at the yeah. London Palladium or something. Yeah, or Heathrow Airport, something like that. But no, I never did any of that screaming except, uh, like I say, with my, at my parents. But uh, no, so I was born in 1960, so basically the Beatles were always there. You know, uh, I, I, can't, I don't have a great memory of obviously first hearing them. Uh, I don't have a great memory of first seeing them. Uh, but I do remember we went to see uh, Help, the the movie. So I kind of remember that. That was, what, 65? Mm-hmm. And uh, we we never had a record player in the house till the mid-60s. And my mother bought one of those uh, Dancit uh, ah. box record players, yeah. The, the whole to... lit up for, uh, or is it lit down for bass, lit up for treble? Exactly, yeah. And it used to have a spindle where you could put certain singles and the singles used to drop. I always remember that. But anyway, so we used to buy singles from about the mid-60s onwards. And one of the first I remember in the house we had was uh, Paperback Writer. So that would have been, what, about 66? Uh, Do you remember any of the other singles from that time? They don't even have to be Beatles. But other singles. Yeah, I was going to say that to you because um, although I've got a lot of memories of the Beatles in that respects, you know, buying the records, seeing them on TV a bit later on. Uh, it's also true that uh, we had other records in the house. You know, as we bought the record players, say, mid-60s, and we started to buy uh, singles. I had an older brother and older sister as well. And uh, so we, uh, I remember having the Hollies. Oh. Look through any window. I remember uh, Freddie and the Dreamers. But I also remember uh, Motown. We're a big Motown fan. So I remember the Supremes. We had their records and Smokey Robinson. And also in England, reggae became very, very popular in the late 60s. You know, the My Boy Lollipop was probably one of the first, the Millie uh, record that was earlier. But then at the end of the uh, decade was Desmond Decker and people like... The Israelites. Like, yeah, the, exactly. The so whole basically, thing. That's right, which I really liked as well, you know. So, uh, in other words, the Beatles were just one of a number of different bands and genres of music that I liked. I can't say that I was a Beatle fanatic and, you know, I just saw the Beatles and, you know, everything all of a sudden turned Fab Four. It wasn't like that at all. They were just one of a number. And, uh, but just I do a remember. a piece of a larger great- puzzle. Yeah, and I, I do remember them on the David Frost show. They did the uh, the Hey Jude film that you've probably seen where all the crowd gets up on stage. That was fantastic. But, of course, we had a black and white TV, so it kind of wasn't until later 
that I saw that in colour. But uh, I also remember them uh, uh, when they uh, appeared on the uh, the rooftop and they had the on top of the pops they used to play uh, Get Back. So the Beatles are always there. But like I say, I also liked other uh, music as well. And of course, the other thing is I was a boy. And I mention this a lot in my book, and that is that it was a girl phenomena, the Beatles, in England and here. And uh, I'd say more so in America, actually, but we could talk about that later. But uh, what that meant was I was also interested in things like football. And so instead of having pictures of uh, Paul McCartney up on my bedroom wall, I had pictures of, uh, uh, you know, favourite football players like Colin Bell or whatever. So... um, you know, in that way, I, I, I can't say that I was a fanatical Beatles fan or anything like that. And then when I started to buy my own records, which was in the early uh, sort of 70s, 73, when I became a teenager, uh, what I liked then was uh, Led Zeppelin, uh, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, David Bowie. I was a huge David Bowie fan. And then, of course, I liked punk music. I loved uh, the Clash, the Pistols, the Dattle, Buzzcocks, all of them. And uh, I still carried on liking uh, soul music, uh, African-American music, disco music, and also reggae music. I've always liked uh, reggae music. So again, you know, the reason why I say Generation 1.5 is because uh, uh, we came to age, that Generation 1.5, in the 70s. And the 70s uh, in Britain was a, a lot, to less, you know, endearing in the 60s. You know, there was uh, unemployment reached Great Depression levels again. Uh, there was three-day weeks, there was strikes. And so we kind of always felt, I think, that we kind of missed the party. The party was in the 60s and the Beatles, and we uh, It we wasn't kind of the summer it. of love anymore. It wasn't the summer of love. It was the summer of hate in many ways. With uh, You know, that was the, the sort of slogan that a lot of the punk... Uh, groups used and of course i was a huge clash fan and one of their songs 1977 had that uh, wonderful uh, lyric no elvis beatles or the rolling stones in 1977 and so that was the kind of way that uh, they were seen as a previous generation the beatles and the stones and all that and we had our own music so i was never you know i liked them but i was never uh, uh, an obsessive fan of uh, the beatles and i can't understand these people that say they were three years old and they became uh, huge Beatles fans. You know, I think it's a bit too young, really. Well, I, I think they could, if their parents were of the right age, hear them yeah. a lot on the radio, play the records around the house. You know, That's true, I know yeah. someone who, you know, his mom would play him, you know, She Loves You, and he'd go around the house singing, like, She Loves You, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true, yeah. I always think that some of them kind of look back nostalgically and try to think that they remember being three-year-old Beatles fans. but Trying maybe to they will it trying to yeah, create memories could, maybe it is because my my parents was uh, were a bit older uh they were irish immigrants and we used to uh play uh, irish music in the house rather than uh you know she loves you so anyway that's my background uh, in there, terms of there's the- an important question yeah because uh, this fills a major quota for the show um yes. in the 60s did you have any records by dave d dozy beaky mick and titch no i'm heartbroken I, I, I have to mention that group at least uh, once per show. Yeah. No, I do know who they were, obviously, but uh, no, I can't remember having record. I just remember Freddie and the Dreamers, Millie, um, like I say, the Hollies. I don't remember the Stone. We never had any Rolling Stones records either, no Who records. Uh, so it was kind of pop. Yeah. 
the, the stones and the who may have been a little intense for a, a six-year-old. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, and for my parents, I think. I think they would have been, you know, the Beatles were a, a sort of group that parents liked as well. You know, my parents were quite happy with the Beatles. I don't think they would have been so happy with uh, Mick Jagger or uh, Keith Moon. Now, would you let your daughter marry a Rolling Stone? Exactly. That kind of thing. So, yeah, and I think that 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 was probably why. But, uh, yeah, so Top 40 Pop, that's what I kind of liked. And the Beatles was just one of another that I liked. So so you mentioned the the paperback writer single. Uh, Do you remember what your first Beatle album was? I remember the first album that came into the house because like I say, we got a record player that was playing singles first uh, in uh, the Dropping mid-60s. Down. Yeah, but uh, the first album that ever came into my, uh, to the house, my brother bought and it was Abbey Road. So that was 69. 69. That was the first album that I saw. I was nine years old and I said to my brother, what is that? And he said, son, it's an album. It's way too big to be a single. But anyway, so, um, so yeah, that was the first album in the house. First album I bought, I'm ashamed to say. Well, no, I shouldn't say I'm not ashamed, but for some reason it's a strange album. I don't know if you ever even heard of the group Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne? Farn. Lindisfarne. Oh. Yeah, it's a, it's a place in uh, the north of uh, England. But anyway, that, that was the name of the group, and the, the, the name of the album was Fog on the Tyne. Uh, they had a hit single in England called Meet Me on the Corner. I've, I've heard of the single. I don't think you have, Ethan. You just I, I've nice heard of... the name. No, you haven't. So let's move on, because <laughs> you, you obviously got no sympathy. So anyway, so that was the first album I think I bought. And then after that, it was, you know, everything. <laughs> but in terms of Beatles albums, my brother was the one that was buying them. So I used to hear them from him. He bought the, the Red and the Blue albums, of course, in 73. So I was familiar with the the Beatles songs and then he also bought the early Lennon and McCartney solo records mm-hmm. but not the Ringo or Harrison ones well the Harrison one would have been you know a little expensive because it was a triple record I've never asked him I probably should why did you not buy the Ringo and the Harrison ones because okay. he bought all the solo Lennon ones and I tell you I did quite like Sometime in New York City I know everybody hates that record but I kind of liked it he I played it Oh, you don't? I thought I, it pretty good. No, it, it's delightfully raw. Yeah, I like it. I thought it was some good song. And also, maybe because of the Irish background, I like the songs that he sang about Ireland. And also, um, uh, Paul McCartney's Give Ireland Back to the uh, to the Irish. I remember that as well. But anyway, he, so he bought a lot of Paul McCartney and, and Lennon uh, solo records and the two Beatles ones. And so that was the kind of music I heard. And of course, if you got into punk in 77 or whatever, it was just around the same time that the um, uh, the Hamburg tapes came out. Mm-hmm. And so I think people started to sort of like appreciate early Beatles as being sort of proto-punk. Oh, they well. were? Yeah. So I think that, that kind of tied in. And then I just became interested in the history of uh, pop music and as soon as you start looking into the history of pop music uh, obviously you've got Elvis and all the rest of them and then it's got to be the Beatles and the Stones and uh, all that kind of stuff you know and there was a lot of sort of um, uh, books that came out and magazines at that time that were plotting the history of the music for the first time 
And also, the, for the first time, they were bringing out these um, 100 best singles and things like that. And I remember NME, uh, New Musical Express, did one in, I think it was 76, if I remember right. And it was the 100 best singles of all time. And so that Bohemian Rhapsody was one of them, I think. I think it was Bohemian Rhapsody and A Day in the Life were tied for number one on that NME chart. I don't think... I, don't, I think we got different charts. Okay. I'm sorry. I think A Day in the Life was even a single, was it, Ethan? I, I thought it was just like the 100 greatest songs of all time. Well, they've done a few of them down the times, but the, this one I, I remember distinctly because inside the uh, New Musical Express, it was actually a poster. And so you could take out the poster, unfurl it, and they had sort of like images of each one of the... It's really fancy... Uh, uh, you know, it wasn't just listing songs. It was actually a little image of each one of the singles as well. And so it was very nice. And I remember then going through that and buying a lot of the singles because they recommended them as being the best. And, of course, some of the Beatles songs were on there as well. So I was interested in the history of it. And also, I don't know if you remember that uh, book that came out. I know you're a book man. The one about the, um, oh, is it a pictorial history of the Beatles? I can't remember. If it was that uh, Tony Carr and Tyler... Carr and Tyler book came out in the mid 70s uh, towards late 70s and they were both writers on the New Musical Express and they bought out one of the first sort of like uh, books about the history of the Beatles really and it was kind of like a pictorial book Uh, I'm not sure that one came out over here because there's, oh, really? there's a couple from the mid '70s that kind of ring the same bells. Yeah, it's quite a well-known one, but I think it's called Pictorial History of Them or something like that. Anyway, but anyway, it was a good one. Oh, so, in other words, oh. I was getting interested in the history. You know, is, is it the illustrated history? That could be it. That sounds better, Ethan. You've obviously got a better memory than me. Well, clearly not, because I think I just messed up that enemy list. I it wasn't a day in the life. It was whiter shade of pale. I was thinking of. Oh, I can't remember, actually, I should know again what was number one in their list, but that was certainly high up there, mm-hmm. as it should be. Yeah, that was definitely very high up there. Oh, last year oh. I, I was on a huge Procol Harum kick, so I was just going oh, through, right. trying to find everything I could about them. Yeah, but is, is that uh, head and shoulders above all their other output or not? Have I got the wrong impression of Procol Harum? They, they've got some good stuff, but Wider Shade of yeah. Pale is definitely the, the creme de la creme. Yeah up there in it yeah so how how would you describe your your status as a Beatle fan because from what you've told me so far about you know your early life you weren't exactly like a Beatle super fan no and I'm still not to be honest Ethan between me and you uh I'm not interested in hearing the eighth take of Strawberry Fields uh, I'm not really that interested in these extended versions of the albums that have been coming out in recent years. And uh, I don't really know what instrument was played on every single song that the Beatles produced. So I'm not into that kind of uh, level of uh, sort of detail. Really what I'm interested in, I think that the Beatles were obviously a cultural phenomena. And so I'm more interested in the history. I, I consider myself an historian of the Beatles. I'm not a musicologist. I, I really, you know, I, I couldn't really write on particular songs, but uh, I'm more interested in them where they fit into the 60s and the history of Britain, America and the world. But I, I mean, obviously, I still like the Beatles, but uh, as you know, I'm sure most people do, but I can't pretend that I'm a fanatic. You know, I'm not interested in going to see tribute bands or 
Yeah. That's what we love, really. Well, you, you do seem to have a niche. I, I follow you on Instagram, and you post all these wonderful magazines of interviews. Would that yeah, be your niche? That, yeah, I'll tell you how that come about, uh, Ethan, is that when you write a book like this, you do so much research, okay? And once it comes to write the book, you realize that you, you can't use it. It's just not going to fit the, the, you know, the story that you're using in the book. And also the editor has a red pen and they also put lines through pages. So in other words, uh, I had a lot left over and I was always wondering, what am I going to do? I was, should I write more articles, different on uh, Facebook and on uh, Twitter? So how how did you decide to write the book did did you approach it from like a a beetle historian perspective or from just a, a regular historian's perspective yeah, yeah the the book came out about because uh, my last book was actually uh, it was called America in the British imagination and as it says on the tin it was basically about the um, the British view of America since World War two and as I was finishing that, I thought uh, I wouldn't mind doing a book that kind of looked the reverse way, you know, in other words, looking at the American view of Britain. And uh, as I was thinking about that, I began to realise that, uh, you know, it'd be a better book or a more manageable book if it was just about the Beatles, because obviously the Beatles do change uh, the American view of uh, Britain. And so I thought I'd write a book, therefore, about the American view of uh, the Beatles when they came here in the 60s obviously and uh so as i started with that idea i realized that america is just too big a place and too regionalized to do a generic what did the americans think of the beatles because in the 1960s even more than now but i know it's uh, you know very similar now america is such a regional place you know that uh, you have your own obviously histories ethnic makeups racial makeups their own TV stations, their own radio stations, their own politics, their own newspapers, their own music scenes. Some groups are very popular in some part of the country and never heard of in other parts. And so it just made more sense for me to actually pick a region and go into greater detail about how exactly the Beatles impacted radio, music, newspapers, how they were seen by the media, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, so I ended up obviously picking Chicago and that's why the book is about um, Chicago. And the reason why it's about Chicago is I thought I wanted to pick a city that was relatively big and uh, Chicago in the 60s was the second largest city in America and it had a large black population. I wanted to uh, understand about how African-Americans viewed uh, the Beatles. It has a large uh, student population. So I wanted to view how students saw the Beatles and also suburbs. They had a, a growing suburbs in the 60s. So it seemed to fit as a place that uh, was kind of like a laboratory where I had all the sort of demographics that I needed to do a, a thorough uh, research on how people in Chicago viewed uh, the the Beatles. But I should say one other thing, and that is, uh, uh, when I, you know, I think it's true about anybody writing these sort of community studies. You don't just draw a circle around Chicago and just say, oh, I'm just going to look at what happened in Chicago. The point is that what you do is you look at Chicago in depth, and then what you do is you compare it to what happens elsewhere. And so the bookers have got a lot of comparisons from what was happening elsewhere in America and also comparing to what was happening in Britain, in the UK. 
And so it's not just about Chicago. It's basically about uh, how the Beatles were seen in the, in the Chicago area and then how that corresponded as being similar or different to how it was seen in America, uh, the UK, uh, etc. And as you also know, probably Chicago has a lot of connections with the Beatles. Well, that was, so thought- that was going to be one of the next things I ask you. It's uh, when people think of the Beatles in America, they usually think of, you know, the Beatles in New York or the Beatles in Los Angeles. But seemingly Chicago is one of the strongest connections to the Beatles. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, if you, I'll just give you a few examples but, uh, because there is literally tons. But uh, uh, again, the first single and first album that was released, a Beatles album single that was released in the US was released by a uh, Chicago-based record company, VJ. Uh, Then, uh, as far as we know, documented evidence seems to support that, that the first radio station uh, to play the uh, the Beatles in America was WLS, which was based in Chicago. And also, I think that the the WLS uh, uh, had a huge signal. They could be heard all over America and into Canada. So I also think that when the Beatles did break in America, WS was pretty uh, crucial for that. Because once they started playing Beatles records, they could then basically be heard all over the Midwest, down into the southern states, and then up into Canada as well. Uh, Another connection is that, uh, you know, the Beatles toured America on three occasions, three summer tours, and they played in Chicago on each one of the tours, and they played overall five concerts in Chicago. And the only place that played more was New York. They played more concerts in New York, but nobody, nowhere else did they play more than five in uh, the US. And then uh, in 65, they uh, played at uh, White Sox Park. They played two concerts, and the combined audience was 62,000 people. And that's more people saw them on that day, that was August the 20th, uh, 1965, than they did on any other stop on their North American tours. More, more than Shea Stadium. Exactly. Shea Stadium, we think, 56. And Chicago, 62. As a matter of fact, I think, and again, it's very difficult to get figures because um, they didn't keep very good uh, uh, receipts in that at the time. So you're kind of depending on newspapers for these uh, figures. But uh, the only place I think where uh, more people saw them on one day is when they played in the Philippines. Now, again, I'm not certain about that because I haven't researched it, but I believe that they played two concerts in a football stadium in the Philippines to 80,000. But I'm not sure. Uh, I could be wrong. But besides that, I can't think of any other place where more than 62,000 people saw the Beatles in one day. And then uh, if you want me to go on, and I can see it by the look on your face, you do. Uh, the, um, they also, uh, the most, probably the most famous press conference ever gave was the one that they gave in uh, Chicago in August 1966. And that was the one where uh, John Lennon had to apologise for saying that uh, uh, the Beatles were bigger than or more popular than Jesus. The, this uh, would be the also, part of the show where I would break into my John Lennon impression and do the quote, but I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to today. Yeah, I'd recommend no. Ethan. They heard it here. Anyway, in turn, anyway, so that's another one. And then, of course, uh, even after the Beatles split up, there's a lot of connections with Chicago. Uh, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Uh, John and uh, Yoko uh, made some, uh, shall we say, unusual films? Avant-garde. That would be a good Experimental. Have you got any other yeah. words? 
anyway and the first time that they were shown uh in public in uh, was in chicago they, they played here in november uh, 68 uh you also i don't know if you're familiar with this but also they they bought out an album where they were naked on the cover uh, yes two virgins that's it and uh the uh, the first place where people got prosecuted because of that album was in chicago two people that ran a store in chicago they put a picture up on their uh window display of that cover and uh, they were arrested by the police in chicago but anyway uh, there's tons of other i mean i'm only giving you little ones here but there's tons of other connections you know the uh, wls as far as i know was the only radio station to ban not one beatles uh, record but two and they went even further because they also banned uh, the Cold Turkey, you know, the Plastic Ono band single. So really, you could say at the end of the 60s, they actually banned three Beatles uh, records. Um, I can go on. Well, well, let me give you one. I, I was going, I'll okay. I'll Ringo give you one Starr. Ringo. Ringo Starr. We all see, you know, every year now on his birthday, we see him celebrating the uh, peace and love on his birthday. Now, the first time he did that was in 2008 in Chicago. So Chicago gave birth to his yearly birthday peace and love events. So does that mean we have Chicago to blame? That is a word that some people use, Ethan. That is one of the words. perspective of these uh, events. But, uh, yeah, the first one he did was in uh, Chicago. So it gives you an idea. Anyway, there's tons more. There's loads in the book. You can read it all in there. You don't need me telling you. Well, I recommend everyone out there, if go read his book it's good yeah i think every home should have a copy every home should have a co- every home should have David, more I, than one copy well you're right i didn't want to be too sort of boastful but you're right yeah I'll, I'll be boastful for you thank you ethan um something i wanted to ask you a little bit more in depth was about wls um because a lot of people who i've i've talked to on my show who grew up in you know the midwest and mm. chicago have always consistently talked about how important wls was into in getting them into the Beatles. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, okay, so basically VJ uh, released their first single in America, Please Please Me, and they were based in uh, pretty much in uh, downtown Chicago, on the sort of uh, the south side of Chicago, and they weren't that far from where the WLS station was, and they also had connections because the, uh, one of the owners of uh, Vivian Carter was the uh, one of the owners of VJ, and she was a DJ, not a WLS, but, I mean, she was a DJ. So they had a lot of connections in the music uh, business. So, therefore, it was quite easy for VJ to literally walk that record from their headquarters in uh, South Michigan Avenue up to the WLS headquarters and hand over the record. And the person that we think uh, played it was uh, Dick Biondi, who was the uh, the DJ in uh, Chicago. And the reason why we know it is because uh, they they used to have these surveys where they they would list the records that they played. And you can quite clearly see on uh, a couple of their surveys that it did they did actually play it, and it did become uh, a local hit in. Uh, uh, Chicago. So we do, you know, that the, the, the only thing I say, uh, I'm a little bit hesitant to say uh, for definite, is because there is some people say that they uh, heard Love Me Do played on radio stations as an import 
Mm-hmm. And that may be true. I don't know. But in terms of Please Please Me, VJ was the first to uh, release that record, and it was played in WLS. And like I say, WLS, uh, it was founded by Sears, and it stands for World's Largest Store. Okay? World's but because Largest the Store. Yeah, that was the WLS. But the reason why uh, it was so, uh, why you're asking about it, is because of this huge signal that they had that meant that they could be heard all over America and into Canada. And because of that, they were nicknamed World's Loudest Station. I I actually had no idea what it stood for. I thought they were just random call letters. I know. It, isn't it, it, it makes sense, World's though. Largest store. Yeah, C is Roebuck. Well, because you also have uh, WGN, World's Greatest Newspaper. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, the Tribune uh, wasn't shy about uh, boasting. No. World's Greatest Newspaper? I'm not even too sure about that. Um, One of the things that really, um, as, well, as an 18-year-old, kind of made my eyebrow raise in the book. Oh, no. you were talking about the uh, infamous uh, woman with the plaster casters and uh, how her career was kind of rooted in early Beatlemania. Okay, Ethan, I knew you were going to go there. Now, a lot of people were inspired by the Beatles artistically. And the plaster carters of Chicago were inspired by a photo or photos (laughs) that they saw of the Beatles. And what they saw is that the Beatles used to have the long hair, pretty obviously, but they also wore tight trousers. And so these teenage girls were very impressed with, you know, the yes. tight trousers. But anyway, so uh, I, again, you'll have to read the book because it's a little bit X-rated. And I know that your audience can be pretty young, uh, Ethan. But uh, the basic gist of it is that they used to make plaster casts of uh, men's uh, crown jewels. And she is an artist. She did actually have exhibitions, uh, the plaster casters, but the, the plaster casters of Chicago. But the funny thing is they never did any of the Beatles. You'll be delighted to hear. Or maybe you won't be. I don't know. But uh, they were included in a Paul McCartney song. That they were. And it was a couple of years later, the inaugural uh, plaster cast. Wasn't that Jimi Hendrix? Yes, Jimi Hendrix in Chicago. And uh, there's a lot of stories about them, about uh, some people wanted to have complete strangers put their crown jewels into plaster. Uh, but uh, for some reason, some people didn't. And so... Uh, you know, some people ran away when they approached them, but other people uh, quite willingly decided that, uh, yeah, it's a great idea to have two strangers putting my business into plaster. But anyway, yeah, that's one of the stories. I was using them as an illustration because I wanted the book to be entertaining, pretty obviously. I didn't want it to be a dry academic book. And so I wanted to include a lot of stories in the book. And that was just one of them, of people that were just uh, enamoured with the Beatles. Well, uh, on a bit of a lighter note, so our our younger listeners, if there are any, can take their fingers out of their ears. Um, They've run off now, Ethan. They have run off, and we have scared them. Um, The book is full of a lot of really interesting quotations uh, that 
you can't really find anywhere else because a lot of Beatle books and I'm friends with a lot of Beatle authors. I'm sorry to say a lot of them are filled with the same quotes. Okay. Now I did that on purpose and Ethan, I am so happy you noticed that because what I wanted to do was I didn't want the same tired old quotes and same tired old stories. You know, they've been done so many times. So what I wanted to do was use fresh material. So as much as possible, I tried to use material that uh, was not, uh, commonly available and the thing about the Beatles they gave so many interviews it is quite incredible how many radio interviews TV interviews but also print interviews they did and uh, it's amazing that uh, considering all that that uh, it's the same five or six sources that people seem to use so, so there's so much out there that we can get a real picture of what the Beatles uh, thought so anyway I know you mentioned it earlier and I kind of didn't answer that about the Instagram what I'm doing on Instagram actually is I'm putting all of those uh, print interviews on there so if you go into my Instagram account you can see every day I'm putting one in there and they're all the interviews that I used for uh, this book but yeah, I'm glad you noticed that because I, di I didn't want to use the same old quotes, same old stories. I wanted to use uh, different stories, different quotes, different sources. But you know what, Ethan? It's a lot of work. Well, I was going to say, um, I, I don't think there's one central library with all of these uh, quotes. You'd have to track down all these, you know, Tiger Beat 16, whatever hyperbole name of, a, you know, bubblegum magazine or whatever how did you go about tracking all this down look my my family have suffered in me writing this book my wife and daughter i think suffered the most my condolences because every time i used to say to my daughter should we have a day trip and she'd say yeah that's great we used to end up with me in the library and her waiting for me outside when we went on vacations we used to go to places like Murs Freeze Borough, which is 30 miles from Nashville, so that I could find a copy of Derek Taylor's 50 Years Adrift book. Or when we used to go to England to visit relatives, I would spend time in the British Library. And we used to go to another strange place called Liverpool. And what we used to... Yeah, have you that, heard of it? That sounds... Familiar? That sounds like... Oh, Blackpool, yeah. Liverpool. Okay, I was thinking of Blackpool, yeah. I know you were. But anyway, so we went there as well, and what we used to do there is I used to drag them around houses that were owned by the National Trust. I used to drag them on tours called Magical Mystery Tours of Liverpool. I used to drag them to uh, the uh, the library, the central library in... So anyway, the point I try to make is I, I, I basically travelled everywhere because there's so many different sources uh, for these uh, books. There's, there's a lot of good stuff in Chicago, you know. There's uh, Northwestern University is a good music section uh, that has magazines there, a lot of magazines. There's also, uh, I wanted to look at the Mayor Daily Papers, which are in uh, Chicago. But also I did have to visit places, like I say, like in Missouri, that has got the Art Unger Papers. Do you remember Art Unger? He was the, sure. the man. Yeah, he was the managing, uh, or sorry, he was the owner, the publisher of Datebook magazine. The one, the magazine that uh, was a teen magazine that published John Lennon's Bigger Than Jesus story. Okay, and so his papers uh, are in this state historical site in Missouri. So I had to travel there to look at them, and again, they were wonderful. 
you know, letters from fans, you know, and uh, newspapers. He had interviews of the bands, uh, band that had never been uh, published before. So all of the, so in other words, I went all over the place, you know, and it, the problem with uh, Chicago is they had four daily newspapers in the 60s. Well, you had the, the world's greatest newspaper, and then I, I presume the three lesser newspapers. And only one of them, the Tribune, is digitized. So, so, so th- that one is quite easy to sort of go through. But the others, I had to trawl through day after day, all through the 60s, to try and find material. So, And then you have to look at the suburban newspapers. Uh, Chicago has a lot of local newspapers, besides these four daily ones. Then, like you said, teen magazines. I had to go through the book monthly. Uh, I've got a complete collection of them magazine, you know, the Beatles yeah. book monthly uh, magazine. And then also because I was comparing it with elsewhere, I obviously had to then uh, look through British newspapers. And so I was trawling also through the Daily Mirror and Daily Mail and Daily Express, which uh, I wouldn't really recommend to anybody if you've ever read the Daily Mail or the Daily Express. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I did uh, so much uh research for this book and like i say then by the time you come to write it a lot of it you just can't use you know it's just too much talking about uh, printed material uh, research what can you tell us about underground papers like the seed oh now the seed was a, a, again it's a chicago newspaper after the uh, the beatles stopped touring in 66 they uh, they still had a, a big influence on uh, Chicago and also the rest of America. And that was the period where they became associated with the counterculture or, or uh, you know, if you want to call them hippies. And uh, in Chicago, there was a, a countercultural scene. Now, it wasn't as big as elsewhere, but there was one. And uh, the centre of that scene was a newspaper called The Seed. And The Seed uh, published uh, articles about the Beatles. They also had interviews with them in there as well and even put them on the front page there's a couple of uh, i don't know if you noticed them in the book uh, ethan but I, I put a couple of pages of the lovely pages actually of the seed with john lennon and george harrison on the front cover i i did i yeah. did make a note of that i really enjoyed yeah. the psychedelic uh, very nice oh, very nice chef's and kiss. also uh, yeah and also there was uh, clubs in chicago uh, the uh, Kinetic Playground, which was associated with the counterculture. And they used to play Magical Mystery Tour because, you know, it wasn't uh, shown in the US on TV. They used to show it in the club. Uh, Old Town, which again was a counterculture area, that was a place where uh, they had all these stores that used to have Beatles calendars and Beatles pictures on the walls. So the, the Beatles were very much alive in uh, Chicago, even after they stopped touring. And the seed was definitely something that... Uh, uh, communicated the Beatles as being part of this counterculture in uh, Chicago. Now, uh, the the book makes reference to the fact that Chicago, famously a bit of a racially divided town, but it also explores you know how the Beatles kind of crossed boundaries that not a lot of other groups or artists had done before by appealing to both. Yeah, it's interesting because, again, I think it's one of these topics that hasn't been covered that much, really. There, you know, There's been uh, coverage of how the Beatles were inspired by African-American music. We know that pretty and clearly. And there's the coverage but, of how they wouldn't play to segregated audiences, yeah, but that's about it. Ron Howard, yeah, the Ron Howard film got uh, a lot of criticism from Beatles uh, experts because it was kind of 
you know, there wasn't too much new in the film, really. But they did do a good job about that, about talk, uh, talking to African-Americans who liked uh, the Beatles. But I wanted to develop even further. And so I wanted to look at the African-American newspapers, uh, African-American radio stations, and then also talk to African-Americans around the 1960s. And what I found is that the uh, the Beatles were very popular on the south side and west side of uh, Chicago, which is the areas where most African-Americans uh, lived at the time. And uh, they were um, they were seen as being basically, uh, by a lot of people, not quite American. You know, so African-Americans could relate to them in some ways because they were playing music that sounded rhythm and blues, had a very strong rhythm and blues uh, base to it, but was also played by people who were not quite American. And so I think that that was one of the reasons why uh, a lot of African-Americans were attracted to them. And also their newspaper ran a lot of coverage. The Chicago Defender was the major African-American newspaper. That also had a lot of coverage of uh, the Beatles, and they used to run Beatles uh, uh, contests. And one of them was uh, to win tickets to see um, uh, A Hard Day's Night when it played in uh, Chicago. And it's very interesting because then they showed uh, pictures from the, the winners that had gone to the to see the film. And they, they showed a, a photograph of them coming out of the movie theatre. Everybody was black. So it just and also the film was shown in the south side and the west side. So we do know that a lot of African Americans went to see the film. And then of course I interviewed people that went to see them in concert. And that was very interesting as well because there was a slight reluctance to go and see them because uh, they knew that the audience was going to be mostly white and they also knew that the places where they played was places where a lot of black people were scared to go. They were in the sort of uh, uh, white areas of Chicago. So, so some people did go, and I interviewed some of the uh, people that went to see them. And uh, so, yeah, but I, and also it's true to say, like I was saying, that the, the, the owners of VJ Records, one of the, the woman who owned it was a, a, a DJ. And so there was a lot of coverage also in uh, the uh, African-American radio stations. Because they, because they were released on VJ, they obviously fought their African-American group and they played them on African-American radio stations. So, yeah, there was a lot. And then in the book, I also go on to what happens later in the 60s. And later in the 60s, the, the Beatles' music had changed. It, it did uh, move away from that African-American roots that they had, the rhythm and blue uh, roots. And so the music appealed less to African-Americans by the late 60s. But also African-Americans had changed because of black nationalism. You know, the Black Panthers and uh, uh, Chicago is a, a real centre of black nationalism. And uh, they were looking for their own cultural heroes at that time, like James Brown, the Aretha Franklin, etc. And uh, so there was a sort of movement uh, away uh, from the Beatles towards the end of the 60s. But certainly uh, African-Americans were caught up in Beatlemania, just like uh, white people were. Well, I that was actually what I was going to touch on. It seemed like when I was reading this, it kind of showed a side of the Beatle popularity in in the United States that I hadn't really read that much on before. It's that some of the, like, a lot of the goodwill from, like, 64 had started to disintegrate towards the end of the 60s. You know, the the, the radicals were not terribly happy with them. The, the conservative, like, people and, like, the government weren't happy with them people were turning on the Beatles. Yeah, I mean, but I I think you can start to say, so I I put it in the book 67 in terms of uh, when they became more associated with the counterculture. 
that uh, was something that uh, a lot of people just did not agree with. You know, they, they became associated with, uh, you know, sort of Indian philosophy, transcendental meditation, yoga. I mean, transcendental meditation is 60s. People didn't even know what it was, you know. And they became associated with drugs. You know, I think most people kind of uh, saw that the Beatles were, you know, involved in taking drugs and uh, they also uh, became uh, pacifists they weren't just against the vietnam war they were openly pacifist uh, they're also anti-government it's amazing if you read their interviews in the late 60s and i don't mean just uh, john lennon i mean harrison and mccartney and uh, to a lesser degree ringo they were all uh, anti-authority and that meant anti-government in many ways and so these ideas i think put them out of the mainstream they, they were no longer attracting that sort of like young uh, female audience that they were attracting in the early 60s, but also a lot of parents that were indulging their kids in the early 60s because the Beatles were seen as just these happy-go-lucky... It's like, oh, I'll uh, take you to Woolworths and buy you a Beatle wig and we can go see A Hard Day's Night because yeah, they're cute. exactly. And now now these the scary 60s, marching band take... people taking drugs and, you know, playing the sitar yeah, and exactly, meditating. Yeah. That's right. And so basically those people were less enamoured with the Beatles and they certainly didn't want their kids uh, following on what the Beatles were uh, doing. But I, I, I would also say before 67, I think the 66 tour is also something uh, that hasn't been looked at uh, enough, really, because obviously we know about the yeah. bigger than Jesus. But the problem with that, I think, is a lot of people think that was something confined to the South, that it was a few crackpot DJs uh, and a few crackpot newspapers that promoted this. That was all over America and into Canada, Ethan. And I can see the Canada. silence in your... Yes, even Canadians were against... Yes, you liberal Canadians were against John Lennon and his bigger than Jesus comment. But anyway, so yes, 66, it was all over. There was bonfires in all different parts of America, in the North as well as the South. There was boycotts of their records, much more widespread than we ever thought before by looking at those local newspapers. And so therefore, when that uh, tour took place, the uh, I don't think they sold out anywhere. Or if they did, like they said in Chicago, they, they did sell out. That was because the promoter gave tickets away. He was giving them away just like confetti because he couldn't sell them. And they gave them away to even charities and the charities had problems selling the tickets. So it gives you some idea. And that was because, uh, you know, again, we have an image of the 60s as it being a decade of liberalism, rising liberalism, which is true. I mean, that is pretty much. But there's another story to it, and that's the rise of conservatism. And in 1966... That was the uh, the year when conservatism really came to the fore in America. You know, that was the year where Ronald Reagan was running as governor of uh, California. That was the year where the uh, in the midterm elections, the Republicans won in the, uh, the Senate and the House. In Illinois, for the first time since about the 20s, they took over both houses. So there was a sort of, and also Mayor Daley in Chicago, he was culturally a uh, conservative he might have been a democrat but he's very uh, culturally conservative and there was, so there was a rise of conservatism in 66 and i think that is really why that bigger than jesus was uh, such a an event because uh, they used it uh, as an opportunity to basically uh, put down uh, the liberals and the beatles were a symbol of this social 
liberalism, even in 66. But yeah, by, by the late 60s, I, I don't think the Beatles were as popular. And people think it's a crazy idea to say, because of course their, their, their albums were still uh, selling massively, if not more than they were before. But the Beatles' popularity was was never just about their music. It was it was about other things, and it was it went beyond how many records they sold. And the amount of criticism they took in the late sixties, I think, was above anything that they saw uh, early in the decade. Because because in the book you mentioned that towards the end of the sixties, the is it the new left or the radical left or uh, had kind of adopted the Rolling Stones as the the top group? Yes. I mean, if you, uh, uh, again, the counterculture started to sort of split really in 68. And uh, especially, I think, the the Democratic Convention, for those that don't know, there was basically a uh, anti-war demonstrations in Chicago in August 68, and it ended up in a police riot you can see there was a film that came out about recently, Chicago 7. And uh, a lot of the left was uh, supportive of rock music. They thought rock music was their music. And, of course, the Beatles were the foremost uh, rock band, you know. And uh, they were disappointed that the Beatles never took a stand uh, in favour of uh, new left politics. And, uh, of course, that was exactly the same time that the the Lenin song Revolution yeah. came out and a lot of people were really disappointed in the new left with that song. And also uh, there's a, there is a couple of interviews. You can uh, see that uh, Lenin does make disappointing comments or that they consider disappointing about the new left and about uh, radical politics. And also they actually, a lot of people were boycotting uh, Chicago after the Democratic Convention because of the police riot. And of course, uh, uh, John and Yoko, they decided to uh, put their film on in Chicago in November 68. That didn't go down too well. So for a number of reasons, the new left started to criticise the Beatles very heavily. You can see in all the countercultural new left newspapers, especially in Chicago in the late 60s. And, um, yeah, I think uh, that was uh, very clear. And, of course, the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones at that time were sort of like flirting with sort of, uh, you know, the, 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 they they saw the Rolling Stones as being uh, much more like them than the Beatles. The Beatles kind of uh, separate themselves from the new left, but the, uh, the the Rolling Stones kind of flirted with them. Now, if you actually look at the, the Rolling Stones or their music or their lifestyle or anything, they had nothing in, in the you know, th- th- that was in any way new left. But it's because of their sort of behaviour and the way that they were personified in the media that they became the uh, the symbol for the new left and the Beatles became a symbol of the establishment. And uh, so, yeah, I think that would be another group that turned against the Beatles in the late 60s. Um, you mentioned the, the Chicago riots at the Democratic National Convention, and I was just reading up on this the other day, the timing could not have been worse with the song Revolution because it, it either came out two days before or two days after. And there's all these lyrics about, you know, basically, you know, looking down at um, violent revolution and protests. Yeah, I mean, that, that song, yeah, it came out at the beginning of that week. I think it was the Monday of the convention as the, as the convention was starting. And... Uh, you know, I think that song, what they really disliked about it was the part about uh, Chairman Mao. Yeah. 
you know, the fact that uh, he and he, he actually said later when Lenin was in his, quote, new left uh, phase in the early 70s, that he wished he never put that in. And uh, I think that that really did uh, get a lot of the new left disappointed because you think of all the things that the Beatles could really have talked about politically. And I don't know if you think the same, but I, I think of only two songs that were overtly political that the Beatles wrote. And one was Taxman, which was against high taxes. And the other one was Revolution, which was against the new left. And it's no coincidence, I, I put a, a, a lot in the book about this and also showed you, if you saw that poster that I put in the book as well, the new right actually adopted the Beatles as their band when the new left dropped them. That's not a good image change. There you go. I'm sorry, Ethan, to leave that with you, but yes, they did. And they, they actually uh, liked them because of those two songs. Who wouldn't like a band that criticizes uh, taxes and uh, criticizes the new left? And that was basically the new right. Uh, I was thinking before you said them, like which two Beatles songs are political? Piggies is borderline political. Yeah, they're a bit more vague, aren't they? Yeah. What is the piggies really sort of like just straight people? Yeah. I, I think it's more just like George talking about like, I don't know, the bourgeoisie or something. Yeah, it wasn't even as clear as that. I think it was more just quote straight people. But anyway, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, you could make an argument other Beatles songs were uh, political of some degree or made social comment or whatever, but they were the two most overtly political, where they even mentioned politicians, you know, Mao and, was it Harold Wilson? Yeah, you know. Harold Wilson and Edward Heath, I think. Yeah, and then Mao and the other one. So, you know, I think they're the most overtly, and they're the two that really the, the new right jumped on to say, look, yeah, the Beatles are a bunch of hippies, but they're our hippies. Yeah. Um, kind of going back to you, what do the Beatles mean to you? Today? Sure. They mean... Okay, in terms of the way I look at the Beatles, again, I like the music, etc., etc. but for me, it's more about their historical significance. So uh, if I'm going to write another book, which I probably uh, will about uh, the Beatles or something related to the Beatles, it's because I find them fascinating as individuals and I find them fascinating uh, because of the influence that they had and the way that people perceive them. You know, in other words, you could write any book really and uh, or have any angle on society by looking at the Beatles. There's so much you can look at by just looking at the Beatles. What, what else do the Beatles mean to me today? I, I, that is what they mean to me. They're basically something that I can look at. Can I just say one thing about the individual Beatles? I also find them fascinating because you think about, uh, you know, other musicians or popular entertainers in the 60s uh, and today, a lot of them don't really want to say or do anything that's uh, going to bring unpopularity on them. And that was what was remarkable about the Beatles. They were happy to experiment, try something new and go beyond the boundaries that society had put around them. And uh, there wasn't many who was willing to do that. Muhammad Ali would be an obvious other one. And, you know, there's obviously others as well, but uh, not many. And I think that's what's fascinating about them as well. And sometimes today, uh, when we see Paul McCartney as being the sort of like national treasure in Britain, and we see Ringo Starr, flashing the V signs, peace and love. They're kind of cuddly. But in the late 60s, the Beatles were far from cuddly. 
for a lot of people. They really felt threatened by them. And like I say, uh, I mentioned you earlier about the new left, black nationalists, uh, the um, uh, you know the, the the sort of people that were against the counterculture. They really felt threatened by uh, the Beatles. They were certainly not cuddly in 1969. Well, and I, I think the final questions I have for you today are my favorite, or one of my favorite parts of the show. I call these the quick fire questions. The answers are usually not very quick. What? I'm kidding. Yeah. Go on. Okay. I, I'm sure you saw this question coming. What is your favorite Beatles song? Okay. Now, as I've been uh, uh, writing this book, I've had to listen to a lot of Beatles records. Obviously, I had to listen to them all because of what I wanted to get from them, okay? And I don't really care if I hear Yesterday, Let It Be, Strawberry Fields again. I know I shouldn't say that to you because you want to hear them all the time. Oh, no, that's, but that's I, a perfectly reasonable thing to say. Yeah, but the songs that I was drawn to were the ones that were kind of not that popular. And I'm just going to pick – can I pick one from John, Paul, and George? Absolutely. You sure? Yeah. Not from Ringo. It, it's it's my show. You can do whatever you want. Well, that's why I had to ask yeah. you because I know it's your show. But it's like there are no anyway, podcast okay. rules. Yeah, but anyway, so I saw uh, Paul McCartney in uh, Chicago in 2011, and uh, he uh, uh, that night I saw him in 2011. He sang that song the night before, oh, and I love that song. And so that has stayed with me ever since that night. I think that's a great Paul McCartney uh, song. Uh, if you want me to pick out a uh, George song, again, this is going to be a shocker uh, because I know most people say it isn't a good song, but I really like it. Don't Bother Me. It's a great song. His first one. I love that song. I think that's a great, great song. But I've heard so many people criticise it. it. It's, and the the backing the track is the... delightfully clunky. Yeah, I mean, people criticise him for the lyrics, but I, I kind of like it. I, I like everything about that song. And then the last one I'm going to pick is the the Lennon one, and that's I'll Be Back. I really like that song. I think that's a great song as well. I could have picked others, but I just thought those three songs, you don't hear talked about that much, but I, I thought that they stayed with me uh, as I uh, wrote this book. You, you kind of mentioned in passing that there's songs that you don't want to hear. I'll ask you the flip side. What is your least favorite Beatles song or least favorite Beatles songs? Okay, I was again going to pick one from each, but maybe maybe not. I'll just say a couple that, you know, I don't know. But anyway, maybe people do like, I can't stand Good Morning, Good Morning. Okay. What, what about... Doesn't do... The... Don't know, just trite, doesn't say nothing. You know, I find that the, the songs I don't like are the ones that don't say nothing or very repetitious, and I find that that way. So I don't like that. I don't like I'm Only Sleeping. I found that very monotonous, over and over, saying the same old thing. Okay, we get the idea. Okay, you're asleep. Uh, and then uh, if I had to pick one more, I'd probably say Only a Northern Song. Oh, you just hit me where it hurts, because that's one of my favorites. I'm sorry, doesn't do anything for me. Different strokes for different folks. Yeah, it's 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 a bit of a noisy song. There's all these sound yeah. effects fluttering. And I, I could yeah, see maybe how it could be a, annoying. A I would say, and judging by the ones I told you I liked, the, and the ones I didn't like, the the Beatles I like is kind of that mid '60s Beatles. <laughs> you know, the the sort of hard days, night help. Ticket to Ride, that kind of period. Yeah. Is the uh, uh, Eight Days a Week. I love that song. Uh, 
you know, that sort of period. And and to round out these questions, do you have a favorite Beatle album? Oh, it would be there for uh, a hard day's night. That that's yes. not an unpopular answer. Okay, you want me to be a little bit? Oh different no, then. I'm I'm just. No, you do. How about uh, the tone in your voice, Ethan? Uh, I'm going to say help as well. Both of them, and I do mean the British one. I know the American one was the soundtrack. I don't care the, for the, the British American one. one. Exactly, but uh, both of them, I think, are pretty much uh, my my favourite. Um, yeah, but I like Please Please Me. I like the early ones as well. I'm, I'm less drawn towards the later ones. Well, I, I was saying, like, Hardest Night's a good choice because everyone always picks, like, Abbey Road or the White Album, and it's nice to hear something from the early years. Yeah, but you just said to me that a lot of people have been picking Well, it. if they pick one from the early years, it's A Hard Day's Night, and that's not a bad choice. So you think I picked okay? Uh, I'm kind of worried. You picked, I'm kind of being generic. I'm just you're picking not, what everybody You're else. not being generic, John. It's it's a good record. Okay. If you were generic, you'd pick Meet the Beatles, the American one. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Now, it's my turn okay. to be controversial. Yeah. Wow. There you go. And Now, do you actually go by the Canadian albums? When you think about... Because I always go by the British ones. Do you go by the Canadian ones? I, I go by... I, I really consider the, the American and you know Canadian ones, to an extent, novelties. Like, I, I go off of the British records, because that's, that's the way they were yeah. meant to be. Although, okay. they're nice cultural artifacts... Having well, exactly. The, you know, oh, so this is how yeah. Capital decided to market it to Americans. Yes, I agree. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that you, you kind of go by the American because the American, uh, oh, sorry, the by the British ones. The British ones were on the CDs, weren't they? They were released in uh, '87, and I believe a lot of Americans at that time were kind of shocked because the they didn't realise that they were completely different albums, or a lot of them were. Yeah. Uh, imagine the guy who actually was disappointed when he bought the CD of A Hard Day's Night. It's like, why is there actual Beatle music on this? This should just yeah. be George Martin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they, uh, lastly, do you have a least favorite Beatle record? I mean, everybody doesn't everybody go for Beatles for Sale or Let It Be? I, I would be hurt if you said Beatles for Sale, but Let It Be is the... The, a lot of people say yeah, them. That's the kind. I, 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 that's the I unwritten thing of the show. It's for like best yeah. albums. I I always say there's a correct answer for best album, yeah. and there's a correct answer for worst album. And you and okay. you hit the nail on the head with the worst one. Okay, I don't know if this is the worst. Okay, I'm not going to say that because I think that'd sound ridiculous if I said that. But the one that I think is just vastly overrated in terms of a listening experience. I don't mean in terms of how significant it was. It's Sergeant Pepper. I agree. Yeah, I just some of the songs on that are so trite. I've got no interest in them really. If I'm if and, I want to hear psychedelic Beatles, I'll put on Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, I think you're right. Yeah, because it's. Ethan, you mean you agree on that? I think yes. I think you're about right on that. Because they're doing like most of the stuff that they were kind of doing on Pepper just a bit psychedelic and a little less trite. I mean, you still have, like, Your Mother Should Know, you still have Fool on the Hill, but... Can I just... I think I, Your Mother Should Know is a great song. Oh, it is, but I'm... I was going to pick that as one of my favourite songs, believe it or not. Really? Yes, I like it that much. 
But again, it's because I was playing it a lot when I was writing this book because uh, I wanted to, like I say, I was trying to avoid yesterday. And uh, yeah, but um, yeah, I I think that's a great song. I do. Some of the songs, like the songs I don't quite like on Magical Mystery Tour, I feel like are made better by the the god-awful TV movie. Because I I enjoy the song more when I see, you know, yeah. the Beatles walking down the stairs and all that stuff. Exactly. Isn't that the best part of the movie? Your mother should know. I, I, I don't know if it's the best the part, but I can part tell you what the worst movie. part is. The, oh, there's so many. There's a lot of worst parts. The part where John's shoveling spaghetti. Ah, yeah. I've got no time for that. Don't mind that. But yeah, I mean, when they're coming down the steps and all that, the your mother should know, I think it, it is a nice uh, piece, which makes the song even better, I think, really. Exactly. And, and now I turn it over to you. Where can people find you and your book? Okay, the book is available on all uh, online retailers. You know the ones I mean. Uh, if anybody wants a signed copy, obviously because of lockdown, you can't really do that. But there's a bookstore in Chicago called The Book Seller. Seller as in wine seller. They sell wine there as well. And uh, I, I left a load of signed copies there so you can get one from them if you want. Otherwise, as I say, on uh, any you know, online retailer. And uh, yeah, if you want to, uh, what I put on uh, uh, social media, it's not about me or my cat or anything like that. Don't worry. It's about uh, the Beatles. So if you want to follow me on Instagram where I put all the interviews, my Instagram account is uh, johnlines.beatles, quite easy. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's johnflines2. And I don't know who John F. Lines one is, but they took it. Son of a bitch. He took it. They're probably listening to this show now. He's he's probably anyway. Just, he's probably trying really to steal your identity. That. Well, that's what I'm worried about. I should never have picked that. Uh, should I? I should have gone for something else. But I was in a panic. You know what it's like when you've got decisions to make quickly. Anyway, and then uh, Facebook. I've got a Beatles uh, uh, page again. Nothing about me in it. Just the Beatles, and that's called John F. Lines Beatles. So if you're interested on stuff that even never made it into the book, or uh, some portions of the book that are elongated. They're the places. And I'll, I'll put all the links in the description. So if you don't feel like typing it out, you can just scroll down and click. Well, thank you, Ethan. Well, of course. That's very nice of you. You've, you've taken the time to be with me today. That's the least I can well, do. Well, you've taken the time to be with me. And now this is my least favorite part of the show. I have to give my little spiel about where to find the show. Oh, God. It's always a tongue twister. If you're watching this on YouTube, which a lot of you seem to do, well, listening, not watching, uh, please hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And also, if you haven't already, ring that little bell notification icon so you get notified every time a new episode of the show gets uploaded. And I post other things, like recently I, I posted an interview with a host of the Old Grey Whistle Test, Bob Harris, which isn't really an episode of Fans on the Run, but you can listen to that there too. And the people who had the bell got to hear it first. So you're missing out. Uh, we're on all the podcasting platforms, all of them. Uh, basically, anywhere you want to find a podcast, we will be there. So Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, blah, 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 blah. And all the sites with the word pod in the name. And we're on social media, Twitter, Fans on the Run Pod, Facebook, Fans on the Run Podcast, and Instagram, where I post all the cool art for the show, uh, Fans on the Run Podcast. Oh, there we go. How did I do, John? 
Wow, that was very impressive. I could never remember all that. Ah, I barely... It it took about 40 episodes to drill that into my head. Wow. That's all 40 episodes? Well, we're up to like some 60-something now, I think. Yeah, I'm impressed. And Whispering Bob Harris. Am I following Whispering Bob Harris? Uh, In what way? And the next episode? Uh, well, that it's an episode that was posted previously. I I did in I fact can't... get Whispering Bob. Yes, he's part of my youth. I used to watch the old Grey Whistle Test, and I always I don't know if you ever mentioned it to him, but I always felt bad about uh, him when he got beaten up by the Sex Pistols. I I didn't mention that to him, but it was in my notes, and we're we're doing a, I think a third interview. So I'll I'll bring that up for you. I think it was actually just Sid Vicious. I can't remember if the rest were involved. I think it was even before Sid Vicious was in the Sex Pistols. He's like, hey, are they going to be on the old Grey Whistle test? And he got, like, someone tried to attack him and he was protected by aforementioned Procol Harum, Rhodes. Oh, was that who it was? I think so. Oh, okay. So it's a bit of a full circle with this show today. Yeah. So we're going to end on Procol Harum. I guess. I can't play the song because I would get sent to copyright jail or whatever. But just yeah. imagine okay. you're listening to Whiter Shade of Pale. Easily done. There you go. John, thank you so much for being with me today. Well, thank you, Ethan. It was a pleasure. And it was also a pleasure that uh, I could speak to a Canadian who could understand this uh, Chicago accent of mine. Yes. So thank you. It, it's Ethan. nice to speak with someone who spells color right, too. With the, with thank the you. Do you say shot or jab? Uh, I I alternate. Interesting. Yeah. In, in terms of like a vaccine. Yes. Well, I'm I'm getting my jab next week. So you do say jab? Uh, I'm saying jab right now. Oh, just for me. Yeah. Okay. Well, I say jab okay. other times too, but. Oh you yeah. Do? <laughs> but to everyone else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Dance on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Fulton. This has been a Showtown production.